You're listening to the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the topics that matter most in the consumer and retail industries. I'm your host, Monica Toriello. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. There is a lot going on in the world right now, a lot of change, a lot of uncertainty, and that's been true for the past two years, right? People everywhere have collectively experienced things that we've never experienced before, including a global pandemic. And one of the things we've seen in the past two years is that the way that people choose and buy and acquire the things that they need is changing as well. And that's what we'll be talking about on today's episode. Specifically, we'll be discussing the evolving role of physical stores in a world where lots of people have gotten used to buying stuff online and getting it delivered to their homes. And our two guests today have studied this topic deeply as they've advised some of the world's leading retailers. So let me briefly introduce them and then we'll dive right in. Tiffany Burns is a partner in McKinsey's Atlanta office. Tiffany has worked on large scale transformation efforts at more than 15 of the biggest companies in the retail and consumer sector. And she has been instrumental in developing McKinsey's perspective on the store of the future. She has co-authored a number of retail articles, including most recently, The Rise of the Inclusive Consumer and The Five Zeros Reshaping Stores, which is what we'll be talking about today, mostly. I encourage you to read her articles on McKinsey.com. Glad to have you with us, Tiffany. Thank you, Monica. Glad to be here. And one of Tiffany's frequent collaborators and co-authors is Tyler Harris, an associate partner based in Washington, D.C., if you're one of our regular listeners, you may recall that Tyler has been on this podcast before talking about the jewelry industry. Tyler is a gemologist, among other things. She is also an expert in retail operations with a special focus on next generation store technologies. So thanks for joining us again, Tyler. Thanks for having me, Monica. It's nice to be back. So one interesting stat I read recently is that U.S. retailers announced about twice as many store openings as store closings in 2021. And yes, there are lots of nuances in that statistic, right, including the fact that there were already lots of store closings in the two prior years. But nevertheless, what it tells me is that stores work, right? People still shop in stores. And in fact, some of the brands opening stores are digitally native brands, right? Brands that used to be online pure plays, but have begun to build a physical retail presence. So there is a role for stores. And you say that that role is evolving. And it's because consumers are evolving. So let's start with that. How is tomorrow's in-store shopper different from yesterday's? in-store shopper? The shopper is different just in terms of the omni-channel behavior that we're seeing, right? Omni-channel customers, a couple years ago, we had thought were going to be much more valuable than single channel shoppers. But the last couple of years have really given us the time and the data to confirm that that was right. right? Omni-channel shoppers shop 1.7 times more than single channel shoppers. They also spend more. So that in-store customer going forward is going to be one that is hitting all of the different channels and all of the different touch points that a brand or a retailer has. It makes consistency really important um, and it makes connectivity between those channels really important. 
The other thing that's really different about the customer of tomorrow is that they are valuing different things in the store. And we are seeing them, the behaviors change towards what they value. So for instance, there is no longer this value on transactional activities. Let's use self-checkout as an example, right? Used to be that when you go to a grocery store or when you go to a department store, customers really valued that personal interaction with a sales associate to help them check out. That is no more, right? It's about speed and it's about convenience. And in many ways, taking checkout at a physical location entirely out of the equation when people are using curbside or buy online pickup in store. So all of those behaviors really are changing in terms of how a customer interacts with the store in all of the different channels and then what they are looking for when they go into a store. I think the self-service one too, Tyler, to your point, is one that we've seen such a drastic evolution. If you think about partnering with clients, you know, call it five, six, seven years ago, there was a lot of questions around if we put a machine there, you know, and people have to use it to check out, you know, they're not going to want to shop with us anymore, right? And, um, you know, and the reality is now people learn technology and new ways of interacting. If you go to the airport a decade ago, right, you would not imagine using a self-service kiosk to check your bag. Today, it is sort of what you expect. They're available, they're always on. And so I think part of, you know, what we've seen is this gradual evolution. And in a lot of ways, COVID has accelerated something that we were already on a path to. Um, but now where we are today, it's kind of irrefutable, right, that these practices are here to stay. And we're basically interacting with a completely different consumer um, that's kind of accelerated uh, to get to where we are today. Tiffany, what underlies a lot of what you just said are the associates and the people, which which bears repeating because the role that associates and the role that people play in the four walls of the store is fundamentally different than it was five years ago. You've got new roles. So you have people, if we go back to our self-checkout example, you have folks who are no longer checking customers out. They are doing much more of a consultative selling or doing new activities that didn't really happen in stores five years ago, like fulfillment, that investing in scalable, digitally enabled trainings for these associates is is really important. And so underlying all of this really is the people aspect and how the people aspect looks different when you augment it with a lot of the technology that's, that's coming into stores. And that's one of the five zeros, and we'll get to the talent part of the five zeros a little bit later on. But in your article, The Five Zeros Reshaping Stores, you talk about the five things, basically, that retailers need to keep in mind as they think about evolving their stores. And the first one is zero difference in channels. And as you said, Tyler, you know, everyone's an omni-channel shopper now, right? I could walk into a store, but maybe I'm just there to pick up something that I already paid for online. Or maybe I'm there to look around, but I'll actually buy the item on my phone as I walk out, right? And stores need to be able to meet the needs of omni-channel customers. So for example, by having a dedicated buy online pickup in-store area, right? How are retailers getting this wrong right now? Or what are they not doing yet when it comes to zero difference in channels? And then on the flip side, what are the best retailers doing on this front? A lot of retailers are still continuing to think about, I have my Omni interaction and I have my store interaction, right? And I'm sort of solving and optimizing those things and, you know, two different ways. And I have two different teams working on them and they're thinking about those experiences. 
And the reality of it is, is if I'm a consumer, when I go onto my phone and I either go on the dot com or on the app, I expect to see availability, connection to what's in store, be able to order things that I can pick up in store, be able to stand in the aisle in the store and research and understand about a product you know, that I may buy. And today, consumers are figuring out workarounds and ways to do all those things. They're switching over from the app to Google and looking the thing up and going to look for reviews. But we see some retailers that are saying, hey, we're actually going to make that a bit more of a seamless experience for you. We're going to have the app help you with wayfinding. We're going to have the app give you inventory visibility in the store. We're going to have the app allow you to access all of our omni-channel different you know, opportunities to order product and pick it up. We're going to allow you to stand at shelf and do research on the product in a way that you scan a QR code and it gives you the information that you that you need. And so assuming the customer is one customer, right, and they want to have seamless interaction across and then solving for that, I think is where we see sort of the best folks evolving to. Um, and, you know, the people who we think are really going to have those winning Omni experiences uh, in the future. And there's an element, too, of organizational change and how you measure success that has to go along with that. To answer the question of you know, what retailers get wrong is oftentimes they'll do all of these things that Tiffany mentioned, right? They'll try to create this visibility and this cross-channel connectivity, but they won't make the KPIs align with that. And so the the best folks are completely rethinking how, how they set KPIs and how they set targets. It is a fundamental change because the industry to date has always been focused on four wall metrics. And so this is kind of turning the tide for, for a new wave that the industry has never really done before. So it's, it's a big change. I was gonna, just going to say, it reminds me of a shopping experience I had a couple of weeks ago and I was looking at something and thinking about it and kind of you know, going back and forth and saying, mm, maybe not now, maybe later. Um, and I, I was about to leave the store and, you know, to the associate's credit, trying to go through the full selling process, right, and going for, at the end of the day, trying to make a strong close and incent me to want to buy it in that moment. And then I said, no, you know, I'm not ready to push go. And they said, well, come back to the store when you decide you want to purchase. Now, that's because that store associate was incented on revenue that comes through the door. Another way that associate could have been incented was let me get the email address from this from this potential customer and follow up right more through a digital channel to offer them something maybe to help push towards the sale and like until the day that that associate can get credit for some interaction that helps do the assist if you think about the sports analogy right make the assist over to Omni then, you know, then these things won't really work together. And I think that that's like a tactical example of the broader system of incentives and metrics and measurement that, you know, Tyler's talking about to really make it all gel and, and work together. So that first zero, right, zero difference in channels, I think is pretty sort of straightforward and easy to understand and uncontroversial. I think the other four zeros in my mind are a little trickier. So let's let's talk about those, right? The second zero is zero desire for assistance, which Tyler, you've already mentioned. but this is not a blanket statement, right? It only ap applies to transactional activities, right? To shoppers who know what they want because they want to just walk in and walk out of a store, not interact with a salesperson unless they need help. But 
and, and obviously that means things like self-checkout, but zero desire for assistance is not about having a store with no employees in it, right? It's about redeploying store employees to provide the services that, that customers actually want. Is that right? So maybe you can talk a little bit more about, you know, how retailers can not sort of swing the pendulum the other way, because you can imagine people being really alienated or customers feeling really sort of turned off by a store that is all about technology. In the pandemic, right, we saw we saw folks using curbside and using Bopus and using self-checkout at rates much higher than we did in the past. And those behaviors, what we're seeing in a lot of our consumer research is pretty sticky. 70% of people who tried self-checkout or curbside for the first time in the pandemic say that they're going to use it again, right? So the tides have really changed. There are the two, two places that that associate help is is actually value additive. The first is in your typical, you know, consultative selling, right? How how do I understand more about the product? How do I pair a pair of shoes with a dress um, so that it looks great? Um, that's one. The other is that you can't install technology and just let it ride, right? You've got to have some sort of oversight from an associate over things like self-checkout, because when the machine behaves badly or when you hit the wrong button, you need to have someone there to help because not having someone there to help is just as frustrating as um, as waiting in a long line. And that's a lot harder too uh, from, a, from an associate perspective, right? It's a lot harder to look over a bunch of different self-checkout machines and read body language and realize that the person at machine number four is frustrated and it's not, and the machine isn't working right. That that's a lot harder. So there's a lot of training and a lot of nuance that goes around actually making that work well. And I'm sure there's also a lot of nuance in the third zero, which is zero wait time. Um, so, you know, you say the two day delivery is basically table stakes, you know, just consumers are becoming more impatient and speed is of the essence, right? So, so demand is growing for same day delivery or even instant delivery, like within hours or minutes. So demand is growing, but is backlash also growing both at this sort of, I want it now mentality, but also at the instant delivery providers and the noise and the congestion that some neighborhoods and cities have started to complain about. So how should stores be thinking about zero wait time? How do you advise retailers on this topic? The expectations on speed um, have significantly advanced, right? If we think about from five years ago, um, you know, you didn't order anything and really expect it to get to you in less than a week. Um, you also were completely fine ordering your Friday night pizza and it getting there in 90 minutes, right? I mean, it was just a little bit of, uh, you weren't sitting in front of your phone and watching the dot as it turned down your street and, you know, stopped the red light. I think the question, you know, kind of gets down to is, where is it all going to land, right? Like, what will be the future standard? And it's a balance of what people are willing to sort of pay and what they expect, I think, is, is what we're trying to continue to understand. We do know, though, um, if you think about it from a fact base, what we can look at and understand is how often when you tell a customer it's going to take three days, do they say, you know what, never mind. We've seen that when the wait times are higher than customers expectations, right, and that varies, right, it's not one definitive number for a different, you know, for a specific customer. Half the people, though, will abandon the cart 
and walk away and say, you know what, that takes too long. Retailers are losing sales, right? When we're not getting this equation right. Um, you make a point around congestion and funny enough, I had a delivery from a mass retailer you know, to my house and the delivery person backed up across my driveway onto my front yard and backed off of the retaining wall and his car was kind of like in the air and then had to get the tow truck and the police to come and so like speaking of congestion and I just thought like I would have been so much better off just like going to the store because like and it rained and I was outside with the umbrella trying to help them and it's just like this is too this is too crazy but I mean to your point the inconvenience to neighborhoods and things that could come with this you know I think it's a consideration right we're gonna have lots of delivery people out if you think about it if we think about the gig economy right we have you know what, 60 million people kind of engaged in that economy and Tyler keep me right in terms of magnitude. I don't think it's yet, Monica, at a breaking point that it's like, it's just too much activity. But I think you could project in the future when everyone is getting everything delivered and the frequency that they're doing it, you'd have to believe that it's driving more activity because if not, we would have just been out in our cars, you know, doing the same thing. And so it's not net higher, but there's a world that maybe it could. I think too, it begs the question on what is worth the wait. I ordered an item for a friend for a gift a couple of weeks ago, and it took two weeks to arrive, but it was customized and it was monogrammed with her initials and it arrived in this box that was a gift in and of itself before you even got to the bag that I ordered, right? And so that whole experience of getting something that is really special and really thoughtful was worth the two-week wait. Um, and so there, there is the flip side of it for retailers of, of figuring out what actually is worth the wait and making those experiences and those products really treasured. Because there's a magic to to that in a world where you've got all of this instant noise. You know, it seems to me that there's some tension also between zero wait time, which is your third zero, and the fourth zero, which is zero tolerance for inaction on equity and sustainability. Because as you say, consumers will vote with their wallets, right? They'll shop from stores that value diversity, equity, and inclusion, and that sell sustainable products and have sustainable business practices. But Zero wait time almost certainly means more packaging, more delivery vehicles on the road. So not great from a sustainability perspective. How should retailers reconcile those contradictions? I think folks are starting to acknowledge that our delivery preferences are creating you know, more waste. And I think you're seeing some uh, retailers say like, hey, are you willing to combine your shipments and sh- you know ship more one more sustainable uh, package? You're seeing people do a lot of product development in the packaging space to try to get to recyclable materials and all those things. So I do think, Monica, folks are trying to combine the we know sustainability is important and we also had these like, you know, I'm going to order five things and the tendency that they could all come separately. I think that in the last year and a half, we've seen we've just seen a broadening of the things that matter to consumers or more of a articulation of a broader set of things that matter. And, you know, one of the things are, have been around the diversity of founders and creators of product on shelf, both, you know, in terms of gender and race. And I want to use my wallet to help promote equity. It's the thing that I can do individually. And so the, the tone and tenor of that has really increased, uh, you know, a lot. Customers are also willing to make some trade-offs, 
right, for some of those things. And so I think one of the interesting ones is on the sustainability side is we're seeing a lot um, more around, you know, solar and IKEA is like installing carports in the parking lots that like you would say, mm, aesthetically, would I want those? No. Is it as convenient maybe for consumers to navigate the parking lot with these structures? Probably no. But are consumers excited to see, you know, retailers kind of putting a stake in the ground and saying, you know, we want to be more energy efficient? I think yes. And so that's the other thing. I think consumers willing to trade off a little bit on experience or convenience in the spirit of more sustainable outcomes, I think is another thing that we're, you know, we're seeing folks kind of lean forward more than we historically have. Yeah, and Tiffany, your point on how widespread it is, is really good because we, Monica, conducted some research recently about the inclusive consumer. So about this consumer who is looking for more Black-owned brands and more diverse brands on retailer shelves. And we found something that's really interesting which was that the inclusive consumer is all of us. When you look at the demographics of this consumer, it looks very much like the U.S. population. Ideas of inclusivity and ideas of diversity on shelves isn't isolated to a single demographic, right? You're, it's not isolated to a certain, um, certain age demographic or not isolated to a certain racial demographic. It's all of us, which means that it's pretty sticky and here to stay, right? It's embedded in the fabric of who we are as a consumer population. 80% of respondents will tell us that brands have a responsibility to better the world, right? It, it raises the bar for retail because retail really in many ways is the, is the battleground or the crucible where all of this is happening. And so when you look at retail shelves, it's really important to think about the complexion of those shelves and what brands are represented, where they are merchandised in the planogram, right? Are they in the back of the store or are they at, or are they at the front of the store where all consumers and all shoppers are going to kind of trip over them and see them? So it raises all of these questions for retailers, um, but one that uh, one that we think is quite exciting because there are so many small, diverse brands out there that consumers are excited about and they're excited about the founders of um, that it creates a lot of opportunity. Yeah, another area where sort of, you know, speaking about raising questions and raising the bar is this fifth zero, which is zero wiggle room on talent, which you've already gestured to earlier in this conversation. And to me, this is a little bit of a confusing issue because there's been a lot of press both about the tight labor market, right? Stores not being able to find enough workers, but also a lot of press about how hard it's been for many frontline retail workers to get enough hours. Um, what are you seeing and hearing and what are the implications on stores of zero wiggle room on talent? Employers, across all industries have to understand we're in a great resignation, right? We've had over 20 million people leave their jobs. Frontline jobs have to be transformed to improve employee engagement and experience. We have to think about it that way because that frontline colleague has good alternatives now, right? They could go take a job in the gig workforce and have complete flexibility, right? It used to be that a retail frontline job was a fairly flexible job. You could give preferences for the shifts you really want to work and you could do part-time quite easily. Um, but now, I mean, people have kind of on-demand availability or not. 
thinking about as a retailer, what is the value prop? How are you improving the employee experience to make that a new and improved value prop so you can continue to attract people? And then to Tyler's point, when you're attracting them, when you're then onboarding them, what's the best way to build their capability to incent them, to excite them, to continue to develop and broaden their skill set? Um, is the new, I, I think what we think is sort of the name of the game and a place that like retailers need to double down and be distinctive, right? Versus just, you know, having the historical ways of working and doing it in place. Yep. And all of these, you know, five zeros present new challenges, but also new opportunities for retailers, right? What's your favorite thing that you've seen a store do in any of the five zeros? I get really excited on the new products and new brands, especially with the with the DEI lens. When you look out over the landscape of entrepreneurs and folks that are building new businesses, right? There's so much excitement there, and there's so many incredible new products and new ideas that diverse founders are bringing to the table. And it definitely requires retailers to work differently because a lot of these brands are teeny tiny and what it takes to get them into stores and onto shelves is very, very different than how retailers are used to operating. So the operations around it have to change, but I think there's a lot that's really exciting there for the future too. And it's a big part of the population to unlock innovation. I mean, if you think about a Hispanic make up 20% of the population, you know, African-Americans in the U.S. 12. I mean, that's like almost 35% of the population that we're trying to activate and make sure that there's equity in that, right? And if you're a diverse founder, you can make a product for anybody, right? Like that, you know, you don't have to just make a product for a diverse population. And so like, I think that I'm with you, Tyler. I think it's really exciting. It should be, you know, game changing. And some of these stories and experiences are the things that I think retailers can use to create a new, fresh, experience to keep driving traffic, which look, we all know at the end of the day, the name of the game is driving traffic and delivering experience for retailers. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast. A transcript of this conversation will be posted on McKinsey.com very soon. To suggest topics for future episodes, email us at consumer underscore podcast at McKinsey.com. To stay connected with us, subscribe to our email alerts on McKinsey.com. Thanks again for listening.